Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations and security policy, who's also worked for a number of liberal political campaigns and organizations. I've also gotten to live outside the U.S. for a couple of years, which, I think, puts me in a good position to comment for my American audience on some events of note happening outside the country, and to interpret for my, I'm pleased to say, growing non-American audience, just what the hell's going on in American politics. So this episode was basically recorded and set to come out this past weekend, but I decided in the end to do something different in honor of the fact that we just passed the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. If you haven't yet, by the way, please go check out that uh, more-than-usually-brief-and-to-the-point episode where I reflect on the dual threats of uh, and harms caused uh, both by jihadism and our potential to make mistakes in reaction to it. As for the episode I'm putting out today... With one sort of exception, I think most of the things that I talked about in this one are, unfortunately, evergreen, as they say, so no harm in waiting a few days to release it. With that bit of housekeeping out of the way, I give you the episode from several days ago. So, the last few months since Joe Biden became the President of the United States have elicited a giant sigh of relief from, I think, a majority of Americans and certainly of folks outside the country paying attention to the U.S., That is, of course, besides those who actively wish us harm and have spent the last four years rubbing their hands together and twiddling their mustaches at every single absurd language-mangling, policy-upending, stability-jeopardizing, self-aggrandizing, sent-from-the-toilet-at-3am misspelled tweet from our former Mad King. That said, the last month or two of news cycles have basically been a clinic in how the blue team, sorry, Democrats, often just suck at politics and at wielding power. This, in turn, has spawned a number of think pieces and various outlets about this reality, and I'm going to go ahead and add mine to the pile, though I anticipate that calling mine a think piece will, in the end, uh, not be accurate at all. In fact, I doubt this will be quite as much the organized recitation of issues with a few stabs at humor and a couple of bad impressions thrown in that I hope my podcast usually is, and more a disordered primal scream of frustration at the other side's completely ruthless, below-the-belt practice of politics and my own side's total failure to respond in kind when it is clearly what's called for. Little less okay talks, little more okay rants today. Now, before I, as I'm about to, complain about the Democrats not being aggressive enough in a number of areas, I should throw in the caveat that the Democratic Party does suffer from some pretty serious structural disadvantages in American politics coming from a number of sources, some of which I've, I've talked about before, like the fact that the American political system like heavily favors rural voters, and those are all Republicans at the moment, um, or the currently super gerrymandered congressional map, or the courts being rigged by the Republicans, or, or a number of other things. Uh, bottom line, it's, you know, I, I think that these structural dif- disadvantages are not enough to justify Democrats being as cautious as they are a lot of the time, but given them, it is understandable that they would be at least somewhat cautious some of the time. I should also note that I'm not in any way suggesting letting the aggressively far left, the squad types take over the party. They're even worse at politics than the rest of the party appears to be. In fact, their entire policy agenda appears to be predicated on closing their eyes and just pretending that political gravity isn't real. So, okay, here we go. In in, in no particular order, I'm just going to talk about a bunch of ways in which the Democrats are often not very good at politics. Here goes. One thing that's going to come up a lot here is the fact that for some reason, in a way that 
I can't really properly define. The Democrats oftentimes just appear to sort of exude some sort of weakness, constantly just kind of almost apologetic, apologizing for everything. I don't mean literally walking around saying the words, I'm sorry, all the time. I just mean a sort of general attitude that of, of always worrying about inconveniencing everyone merely by existing, like we don't have the right to the power that we've won. Look, most Americans don't understand politics that much or follow it that closely, but they do understand what weakness looks like. And our side's constant kind of you know, equivocating, oh, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, ing, totally fails in the, faith, uh, in the face of the Republicans' more, well, simplistic messaging style. This runs the gamut from just even the way we talk sometimes to our side's tendency in recent times to operate in wimpy half measures that take effect five election cycles down the road to avoid rocking the boat, with the effect that voters then don't see the benefit. A great example of this is the way we handled the Affordable Care Act like a decade ago. So healthcare reform was a huge part of the Democrats' agenda when they came into office. And so you would think that they could have come in, you know, owning that with the attitude of like, yeah, we're massively shaking up the healthcare system because it sucks and everybody knows it. But instead, when we actually got there, at least this is my memory, it, it felt a lot more like it was kind of an exercise in demonstrating how much this wasn't going to shake anything up. Like, oh, don't worry, nothing will change for like 80% of people. You know, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. This was the, the sort of the main, the main message that seemed to come out of it. And the bill that we passed didn't actually go into effect for years after it was passed, which gave the Republicans like several election cycles to demagogue the crap out of it. And then when it finally did go into effect and did help a lot of people, we got nailed on the back end for the fact that, no, oh, technically, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor didn't end up being true for every single person. I'm left thinking that if we had just kind of come in and owned this, like, yeah, you know what? We want a super majority, and this is what we ran on. We're going to shake up the healthcare system, and it's going to be a good thing. Deal with it we probably would have had fewer political problems than we did by our other strategy of, oh, hey, hope you don't mind us tinkering around the edge of the healthcare system like we said we might do on the campaign trail. Uh, by the way, uh, the changes we're making won't take effect for, like, you know, multiple election cycles, so please enjoy the following years and years of absurd hair-on-fire demagoguery, you know, Republican attack ads screaming about death panels before you actually get to see the law. Now, to be fair, Democrats do seem to have learned from that at least a little bit if you look at the composition of the big, giant COVID relief bill that was passed early on in Biden's tenure, which looked a whole lot more like checks in the mail with your name on it now rather than a tax break most people won't realize they got buried in the budget five years in the future. But, you know, still, it's worth making this point. In terms of the communication piece, often Democrats somehow just give off the vibe of a nerd who just got a wedgie and their head stuffed in the toilet. Anyone remember Michael Dukakis awkwardly explaining why he wouldn't support the death penalty for a hypothetical person who had just murdered his wife? But some people on the blue team have definitely got this. Look at Bill Clinton. when He was caught various times with his hands in the cookie jar. Okay, I'm realizing I should probably stay away from that or any other body-related metaphors with Bill Clinton, and this, of course, isn't to condone his various bad behaviors, but caught in the middle of a major scandal, 
His approach was a lot less, Oh, what have I done? I'm so ashamed that even the appearance of impropriety that I hereby resign in disgrace. And a lot more, Oh, seriously? An impeachment? Whatever, screw you, man. I'm just going to keep running the country. And his approval rating went up quite a bit in the end. That's why a part of me actually thinks that President Biden's communication strategy on Afghanistan has been smart, even though I'm privately super ambivalent as to whether we should have even pulled out of there in the first place. The fact that Biden took this action without hesitation or apology is a lot more effective at convincing other people that it was the right move than all this ridiculous hand-wringing for a bunch of other Democrats about it. Going full tilt and basically leaving a Biden-shaped hole in the wall does a whole lot more to convince people that there's something good on the other side of the wall than half-heartedly knocking. That being said, though, in so many ways, so much of the Democratic Party's attitude really does just seem like we're here trying to avoid pissing people off. Our side constantly acts as though we have to avoid this, which A, results in, as I have in some ways described, less effective policy, and B, actually has the opposite intended communications effect by, I think, generating the idea that there might actually be some legitimate reason to be pissed off when often there just isn't. Here's a key example. We have not been taking a hard enough line on COVID-19. Where are the mandates? I've been holding in a rant about catering to anti-science yahoos for quite some time, and I'm going to try to avoid losing control of this thing even further and turning this episode into that. I will save that for another day, though to be fair, it would probably just be 20 minutes of me swearing incoherently and banging my head on a desk. But look at this. We are losing the battle to a virus whose metaphorical ass we could have and should have kicked months ago. Like, I know it's more complicated than this, but some form of vaccine mandates have been in place for literally generations with other diseases. By rolling this one out as, oh, sure, here it is, maybe think about taking it if you want, gives the idea that this is something that might not actually be a good idea for everyone. The number of people for whom it actually could be bad is, I'm sorry, vanishingly small. Or giving the idea that it's socially acceptable to choose not to do it. This, then, makes our job way harder when months later we realize not enough people took it, so now we need to push. Now here we are, months after the whole population has been eligible for a historically effective set of vaccines, and yet we have huge numbers of COVID cases. From a policy standpoint, to quote President Obama speaking years ago on climate change, uh, we can't afford to wait around for the flat earth society. And you know what? I swear to you, vaccine mandates would be good politics too. Biden, who initially, and deservedly, got all this credit for making the vaccine available, is now getting blamed for the fact that the pandemic is again spiraling out of control, because a bunch of yahoos would rather wolf down horse paste they got from the vet than be an adult and get their shots. You know what would be a great way to make that political problem, the problem of an escalating public health crisis brought on by people refusing vaccines, go away? Make them take it. Americans seem to respond well politically to the perception of toughness. Also, I'm guessing that just in terms of, of like basic psychology, my guess is that a lot of people would actually feel less afraid about getting the vaccine if it was more obligatory, because... It being more obligatory implies that it's something that everybody should be doing. This, by definition, makes it seem less risky. Also, a bunch of polls have shown that many of the Americans who have not yet been vaccinated would be if, say, they needed it to eat in a restaurant or fly on a plane. If we want an example beyond just polls, let's take a look at France. 
So a couple months ago there, President Macron basically said, uh, we will not obligate anyone to uh, take the vaccine. But uh, the French government was forced to recalibrate their policy a little bit when before too long it became obvious that France, more than almost any other country in Europe apparently, has a whole lot of people who are all like, uh, you will not give me your vaccine. To which President Macron said, uh, in the form of, you know, a, a policy change, oh, you don't want your shot? Okay, that's fine. You don't have to take the shot. But if you don't, no bars, no restaurants, no cafes, no clubs, no museums, no movie theaters, no planes, trains, or automobiles. Now, did this then result in some anti-vaccine whiners staging some violent protests? <laughs> of course, this is France we're talking about. But the next day, like, millions of people went to get vaccinated. It works, folks. Bottom line, my complaint is that we tend to pussyfoot around stuff that might annoy somebody because we don't want to force anybody or make anybody mad. Something that never seems to worry Republicans. And then ultimately, we end up making people mad more than they would have been to begin with if we'd just done the other thing all along. Hey folks, before the episode continues, I just want to take a second to ask you if you haven't already, please, go ahead, hit that subscribe button. Then after you do that, Hit the little button next to it with the three dots or whatever it is on your preferred platform. Hit share and spam that link out to everybody you can think of. That way you don't miss an episode and it really does help get the show off the ground, which I appreciate very much. All right, back to it. So update, as of literally later in the day on which I recorded that previous segment about vaccine mandates, President Biden came out in a speech and actively attacked the roughly 80 million irresponsible jackasses in America, of course I exempt the tiny minority who actually have a legitimate reason to not be vaccinated, who, for whatever reason, have refused to get their shots and blame them, rightly, for us having lost ground in defeating the pandemic. He also announced a bunch of executive actions that will effectively force millions of unvaccinated people to either get their shots or get a giant Q-tip jammed weekly up their nose if they want to keep their jobs, along with a bunch of other provisions like far stiffer penalties for people who refuse to wear masks when they're required to, like on public transport. In one especially satisfying moment, he he directly addressed the people who have like gotten ag aggressive with flight attendants by looking straight into the camera and saying, show some respect. He's also having businesses give people paid time off to go get vaccinated. Oh, hey, look at that. A tiny piece of my last episode made it into this week's news. There's a bunch more stuff in the speech. I'm not going to like list it all out here, but I honestly recommend that you go listen to it. If you are as livid as I am about truculently anti-science morons actively undermining our response to a once-in-a-century pandemic, those are 15 minutes that you're really going to enjoy. Despite this admittedly super welcome shift from the White House, I decided to leave the previous section in. I think the rather long wait to get to this point and the fairly timid approach up until now is still illustrative of my broader point about the Democrats being not good at politics by declining to get organized to exercise their power to the extent that they could and should. To wit, the stalling and infighting and just general nonsense around the infrastructure packages in Congress right now, which effectively contain the bulk of the Democratic president's legislative agenda. Let's just take a second to compare how Republicans operate in the legislature versus Democrats. Now, sure, John McCain, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski apparently decided that 
actively taking health care away from millions of Americans was a bridge too far uh, and blocked the Republican attempt a couple years back to totally end the Affordable Care Act. But on almost everything else, during their time in the majority, Republicans work together in lockstep to legislate without apology, without regard to bipartisanship, operating very much as though their job is to be an extension of the executive when that executive is from their party, rather like a majority coalition would in a parliamentary system. Last time Republicans held a majority, despite their president having won with like a substantial minority of the actual vote in an election whose legitimacy, I would argue, was severely tainted by the evident involvement of America's primary geostrategic, strategic, uh, geostrategic adversary, the Republicans didn't hesitate to use their political power to ram through their tax scam, basically a payout to their rich donors, confirm several like certifiable lunatics to the cabinet, or axe the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations to put right-wing extremists on the highest court, something that I'll come back to in a bit, while also basically sending a fire hose of new, often embarrassingly unqualified judges to lower courts who were so young you'd think you'd, uh, that they bought their first razor in the last six months, thus, of course, guaranteeing that their legacy of their appointment will stretch on for decades. But with the Democrats, well, in the House, although Nancy Pelosi does not have the absolute power to completely stop certain representatives like uh, Rashida Tlaib from popping off and saying stupid crap in public, she does appear to be an absolute master at counting votes and has quite a bit of control over her caucus, which is why I say that the people who have spent the last couple of cycles whining about Nancy Pelosi's age and saying she should retire should sit down, shut up, and hope that somebody figures out, by the time it's necessary, how to like attach Nancy Pelosi's head to a robot or something from a sci-fi movie so she can keep being speaker for the next hundred years. But in the Senate... Well, apparently no Democratic leader since Lyndon Johnson has really been able to wield that much control over the members. And now it seems we can't get anything done without taking Joe Manchin out for an ice cream cone. I mean, the guy slowed passage of the COVID relief bill so that he could force us to make the legislation a little bit less generous, stood in the way of doing anything serious to protect voting rights out of the vain hope that he could somehow convince 10 Republicans to get on board. Spoiler alert, never going to happen. And now the guy's just come out with an op-ed on the right-wing editorial page at the Wall Street Journal, basically giving the finger to the infrastructure package that is the crux of his party's president's legislative agenda. Can you imagine for a second that Mitch McConnell would put up with this from one of his members if it was on an important issue like you know, rebalancing 40 years worth of terrible Reaganomics policy that shredded the social safety net, ballooned income inequality, and left us with crumbling infrastructure? Well, as to say, whatever infrastructure is left, it hasn't been either incinerated in a wildfire or washed away in a flood as a result of climate change, something we could also, you know, fix in one of these bills. Yeah, whatever infrastructure is left after that is crumbling. Now, I've spent years, years privately with other Democrats defending Senator Manchin because... West Virginia is a tough state, but I am so done. John Tester is from a tough state. Trump won Montana by like 17 points. Sherrod Brown is from a tough state. Ohio, not very friendly territory to Democrats these days. But those guys seem to be able to both be from tough states and also not spend their time in Washington grandstanding about Senate tradition and sermonizing about how we shouldn't do anything big unless we're able to get the party that can't even bring itself to agree to a bipartisan investigation of the January 6th Trump terrorist attack on the Capitol to hold hands and sing kumbaya with us. This guy 
has to be brought to heel. It's that simple. I get it. It's, it's tough to wrangle a big, a big tent party, a, a broad coalition. It's like herding cats. But Senate Majority Leader and then President Lyndon Johnson was able to, though. How? He got his hands dirty. He was ruthless, amoral, profane, and on a personal level, just kind of gross. He played hardball. As a result, we got civil rights, voting rights, Medicare, and Medicaid. Not a bad haul, overall, I would argue. I mentioned earlier, too, the kind of hardball that Republicans line up together to play when it comes to the courts, as opposed to the Democrats' court strategy, which Bill Maher has pretty accurately, I think, summed up as Ruth Bader Ginsburg doesn't die. Now, let's note here the fact that a majority of the Supreme Court are Republican political operatives in robes who were appointed by presidents, Republican presidents who had lost the popular vote and confirmed by Republican senators who represent far fewer voters than their Democratic colleagues. Hashtag democracy, am I right? I'm not even going to go into the fact that Mitch McConnell like literally stole a Supreme Court seat right before the 2016 election. If you want to hear more about this, uh, please check out an earlier OK Talks episode called The Implications of the Passing of a, of a Notorious Titan from back in September of 2020. And look what this hardball has gotten them. The aforementioned Republican operatives in robes who have a supermajority on the Supreme Court appear to have just effectively ended the right to abortion in America. Whatever small backlash McConnell may personally have faced for rigging the court in 2016 will not damage him at all, and in exchange, he gets a court that will gleefully run roughshod all over women's rights, voting rights, basically anything that we care about, while McConnell himself just chuckles and spits some lettuce out of his shell. Sorry, my contract states that there must be at least one turtle joke in any episode that mentions Mitch McConnell. He, ladies and gentlemen, just looks so much like a turtle. About this abortion case, specifically, I'm not going to go that far into detail. There are a lot of other podcast episodes and articles done by far more qualified people than me to talk about this who discuss what this means for women in America. Suffice it to say, I'm just as horrified as everyone else is about the policy implications. But there has also been a lot of attention paid to the weird, creepy, vigilante-enabling legal rationale that the partisan Republican judges appointed to the court by presidents who didn't win the popular vote and confirmed by senators representing a minority of the country, just green-lighted. It basically allows randos to sue women who had an abortion, or anyone who helped in any way, and it actively incentivizes them to do it. I might be wrong, I apologize if I am, but as I understand it, if you want to make a quick 10000 bucks and are a monster under Texas's new law, head on down to Texas, get a woman pregnant somehow, wait for her to have an abortion, and then sue her, the counselor who advised her to end the pregnancy, the doctor who did it, and the Uber driver who took her to the clinic, and then basically collect a bounty. Yeah, that's nuts. And here's how the Democrats should respond. In blue states, copy-paste the legal rationale Texas uses to attack a woman's right to choose, to apply, instead, to a bunch of stuff that Republicans care about. Like, I don't know, anyone who has a gun that would have fallen under this since-expired 1990s-era assault weapons ban, or fails to recycle, drives a car that gets fewer than 30 miles per gallon, I don't know, eats a Chick-fil-A. This is a good example of the reality that while the Democrats do tend to be the way more thoughtful, innovative party when it comes to coming up with policy solutions that they'd like to see happen, the Republicans are just so much more creative when it comes to the political moves 
they might make in order to achieve their objectives. Roe versus Wade says women have a right to have an abortion? No worries, we'll do an end run around that by basically outsourcing implementation of our objective to vigilantes. Got an increasing number of young people and minorities getting ready to vote in your state and likely to favor the other party? No worries, we'll pass a law requiring an ID to vote, but we'll specifically allow gun permits and not student IDs. Democratic presidential campaign brings in huge amounts of small dollar donations and thus has more money than our candidate? No problem, we'll just get our political allies on the supposedly neutral Supreme Court to effectively declare money to be speech, which can't be restricted so that corporations and the super-rich who tend to favor us can bankroll our political campaigns. Our system, the American political system, is less codified than those of most other developed democracies. In most other democracies, there are laws, say, against spending unlimited money on political campaigns, or messing with the representative districts so political parties can ensure that their people stay in office by engineering their own electorates, gerrymandering, doing creepy nonsense to suppress the votes of your political opponents, massively enriching yourself and your whole family while in office by making the military stay in your hotels, trying to get other countries to interfere in your own elections to damage your political opponents. In America, we... We rely on, on norms, upheld by elected leaders having a sense of decency and shame. But that, as a system, kind of breaks down when one of the two major political entities just doesn't have any of that. And until Democrats engage in the same dirty tactics, or we can say hardball, creative politics as the Republicans, well, as I've said in a number of earlier episodes, in a system like this, unless a flaw in the system is being exploited by both sides... There's no incentive for the side benefiting from that flaw, which these days is virtually always the Republicans, to consent to any reforms at all to try to fix it. Democrats thus have an actual responsibility to play hardball. Let's hit one below the belt for American democracy, okay? <laughs> A couple of years back, former Attorney General Eric Holder scoffed at Michelle Obama's when they go low, we go high thing, saying, rightly in my opinion, no. No. When they go low... We kick them. Our side needs a whole lot more of that attitude. So let's pass laws structured like the creepy Texas abortion law that push our priorities. Let's not unilaterally disarm on super PACs so as to signal our virtue on campaign finance reform. Let's gerrymander the living crap out of the states that we control. Let's close polling places, and eliminate ballot drop boxes in rural red counties in the states we control. Let's pass voter ID laws that only accept student IDs. And then let's do whatever's necessary to get our Senate caucus in order, pass election reform, rebalance and reform the Supreme Court, and a bunch of other stuff that desperately needs to happen. And let's push those things with the confidence that pushing them will be a good thing for the country and people will come around. You'll get your vaccine, unemployment check, new infrastructure, better healthcare, civics education, electric car, and clean air, and you'll like it. Every two or four years, the Democrats sit American voters down for a seminar on detailed policy questions that most voters don't really have time for, don't really understand, aren't that interested in. And we try to explain how we actually have addressed, or at least tried to address, uh, in our own subtle way, a bunch of their priorities. Meanwhile, the Republicans are on the other side of the room shouting some version of transgender Muslim atheist Mexican lizard people are coming to force you to pee in the wrong bathroom, take away your truck, handgun, Bible, and hamburger, and impose gay Sharia law. Sounds crazy, but they don't hesitate. 
at all. They don't care if it sounds nuts or if they get caught in a lie. That's just the liberal media distorting their words with live, unedited video. As I mentioned with the Clinton example, when our side tried being a little more unapologetic, voters seemed to understand and respond to confidence and the perception of strength. That was also, at least according to them, the reason a whole bunch of Trump's voters liked him. He may have been a monster, an imbecile, a narcissist, a catastrophe who waddles like a duck, while also being wrong about virtually everything and an active threat to the future of American democracy and global stability. But he was strongly wrong about virtually everything and an active threat to the future of American democracy and global stability in a way that convinced an alarmingly large number of people that what he was doing was a good idea. His deeply misplaced confidence convinced them. Let's learn from that and let's take advantage of it. Of course, this obsession among our voters with quote-unquote strength opens a whole other can of worms about probably patriarchy and other things that are wrong with our culture. But you know what? Let's save that conversation until after we have, by adopting some of that sort of strong certainty, won some elections and then effectively and unapologetically exercise the political power we've won. That's it for this episode of OK Rants Talks. If you enjoyed the episode and don't want to miss the next one, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, Google Podcasts, any of the main podcast platforms at this point, I believe. If you really want to do me a favor, please like or review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it, or better yet, share the show with someone who might also be interested. As always, I want to thank my friend Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork. Until the next episode, stay safe, get vaccinated. Thanks for listening.